Ronaldo! Oh my goodness! You don't save those! Out of this world! Messi! 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 Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey is denied again, and Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through! Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. What is up, FUVFC Nation? We are back in studio together after a long winter break with, I think, one podcast produced. You know, we can say we are slacking. I don't think that'd be an understatement, but... I think now we've reached the point where all the joy of the World Cup is kind of settled. You know, we've had both main flight leagues as well as intra-league play, whether it be in, you know, the Spanish Super Cup being finished up this past week or the FA Cup, you know, in full tilt in England. So I think now we've kind of resumed post-World Cup hangover and soccer's kind of back into the capacity that we like. Before we dive into everything that's happened in maybe the past week, we'll try and refine our focus so we're not, you know, trying to catch you guys up on everything that we missed because if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're a soccer fan and you know everything that happened in our hiatus over winter break. So that being said, James Burley to my right, Nick Guzman to my left. Gentlemen, a long winter break. Glad to be back. How are we doing? I mean, I think you said it all, Keenan. Just glad to be back. I mean, just to to see all your faces and to hear your voice not muffled over Zoom. It's uh, it's an extraordinary thing. We take it for granted when we're home. Just uh, really excited to get back into the swing of things here with y'all. Yeah, it's tough to find a time for everybody when you're at home and everybody's doing different things and it's the holidays. Or concern. <laughs> I mean, let's call it a, sp- a spade a spade or a concern. We're not we weren't going to bring you FA Cup fourth round in depth no. analysis. No, and, and I know you guys listening at home were starving for that, <laughs> so we're here to apologize. And we, the real important stuff, the real housewives of U.S. soccer, we covered that. Yes, covered all the bear hall through Gio Reyna stuff, so that's Had good. To. But you know, at this point, I feel like now you can expect weekly episodes. We're back all on campus. Everybody can get to the studio. It's going to be a consistent weekly podcast, and we're going to kill it. So let's start the first of the weekly podcast, killing it, as Nick said. Let's look at the Premier League because this past weekend we had two derbies, you know, really had a lot on the table in terms of how the Premier League is going to shake out. You had United playing City, who at the time saw United move into third place um, and now City plays today against Spurs to try and make up some ground on Arsenal, separate themselves from United, but... 6 a.m. start for me back home in the Midwest on Central Time. Out East, it started at 7 a.m. Kind of, not a shame, but kind of sad that it happened so early because that was an absolute thriller of a game. And then when the 90 minutes went by, United went 2-1 on a controversial first Bruno Fernandes goal. 
Garnacho looks to be the real deal. You know, finally a young player that looks like he's going to take over for United. Rashford is obviously in the form of his life getting a goal in that match as well. It looks now that United has reemerged from whatever we want to say the past two, three years, maybe since Mourinho left, since that initial half season with Solskjaer, that it looks like they not only have direction, but we I think we can say that this title race is a three-horse race between Arsenal, who's in first, who we'll get to when we talk North London Derby, City in second, and then United in third. James, I know United's your club. I mean, you have to be thrilled with that result, especially, you know, in the post game. Maybe it was Robbie Musto on NBC said, United last year going down one nothing to the City game and, you know, how dominant in possession City was, they probably would have been out of this. But maybe it's because Ten Hag has had, you know, such a good run of form since October or he just has players buying in or, you know, there's just more of a belief within this United side and they eventually come back to win 2-1. Uh, it's It's a lot. It's a lot of different things that have gone right for United to be in the position that they are now. Um, Ten Hag has figured it out, has been able to get, you know, um, good play out of players that were kind of written off by United fans and just fans of, of the game alike. Guys like Marcus Rashford, who are back to their best now. And I think that's something that a lot of people can be happy about because Rashford's such a fun player to root for, regardless of what team you support. And he you know, seriously factored into that result over City, scoring the late goal to win it. Um, and while we're, while we're talking about that Bruno goal, I personally thought that was offside. I thought he totally made yeah. an impact yep. on it, yep. totally drew the, the I think it was, who was the center back on that? Akanji. Akanji. And then Kyle Walker and, was coming And then also too. the keeper only squares in on uh, on Bruno. It was probably, probably should not have uh, gone down that way, but the fact that United were able to take that moment and produce another goal out of it just a few minutes later it's a sign of the character that they're building there and it's a sign that things aren't just going in the right direction but they're here and now to be in a title conversation um, I don't think they'll win the title but I do think that they're going to be pressing on the heels of City and Arsenal for the rest of the season and they're going to be firmly within the Champions League which ultimately has to be the goal right now I mean you look at their lineup they probably have the tools to be able to win the league um, but I don't think that was the expectation coming into the year so you have to be satisfied with the way that they're playing and I mean the results speak for themselves to think that they'd be in third place in January um, last season you wouldn't have thought that even coming into this year with Cristiano Ronaldo on the books that that whole part of the, the season's behind them now and now they have so much to look forward to so I think they're not going to slow down anytime soon either and it's it's interesting when you look at this United team because even just earlier this season the narrative was so much more different when Eric Ten Hag first got here you know, there was still sort of the the mindset the club was in disarray. There's a lot of dead weight that needs to be moved around. But some that that dead weight that people kind of people people thought was there, Ten Hag has revitalized, and players who people assumed under previous management weren't effective are now effective players who are who are contributing to this United team being towards the top of the table. Whether it's Martial or Marcus Rashford, who's in some of the worst form of his life last season, now back to his very best. And in this game, I just want that that I just want to give my opinion real quick on that on that first on the Bruno goal. In in and I think everybody kind of is on the same page which makes it even more confusing as to why the referees are not. You know, Akanji's positioning on that same thing with Ederson and goal is all dependent on what Rashford is doing because he's right behind the ball. 
they're positioning themselves as if Rashford is going to be the one to to, to score. And then when it goes to Bruno, Ederson's not where he should be because he, there was like somebody who, by definition, was interfering with the play, and that changes the whole game. And United get the get the second one through Rashford right after on that beautiful ball by Garnacho, but. I think even despite that call, I think United showed so much resilience in that game. You know, even despite getting the benefit of of maybe a, a dodgy offsides call. You know, City for all their possession, over 70% possession, one shot on goal, that Grealish goal, the header. And to be able to go down to your arch rivals who are also fighting for the title and need this win just as much as you do, and to be able to score two late goals is is incredible. And it shows a lot about the resilience that you know Ten Hag has drilled into the side, and just how how well they've been able to turn it around. And I think the the big the biggest biggest thing there is the inclusion of Casemiro in the midfield. He's so good in there, and they're really really going to miss him this weekend against Arsenal due to the yellow card he picked up against Palace. So we'll be suspended for that one. On the flip side of that, United victory is obviously City picking up a defeat who will play Tottenham today at 3 o'clock Eastern, a game that I'm looking forward to because when we get to the North London Derby, I think there's a lot of questions about not only Tottenham under Conte, but Tottenham as the state of a football club, um, which we'll address in a couple minutes. So for all you Spurs legends listening, hold out hope for a little bit longer. City, though, it was a game that I don't want to say looked uninspired, but definitely... Credit to how Ten Hag set up in the back. You know, Casemiro, as you said, Nick, you know, he does so well in that defensive third for United out of the midfield, which I felt, you know, when you expected a guy like McTominay or Fred to do that before Casemiro was, you know, introduced to the squad, you're kind of like, at their best, they'll be able to help. Anything besides their best, then it's like, you know, if they get a bad matchup on a wide player, they're pretty much toast. But now Casemiro is that, you know, defensive mid letting Fred or McTominay which other which of the two Ten Hag selects to kind of you know have a little less responsibility roam around they do a better job picking up runners and you know helping picking up an extra man and we saw that especially with City who loved to commit men forward and you know dominated possession in the first half but and even in the second half too you know through the first 20 minutes I think it was I saw it pop up on the NBC graphic of it, it was like 76 to 24 percent possession which I mean I think Ten Hag went into that game and was comfortable with that, but this is all me trying to say. I think City has the benefit of having been in this position so many times before. You know, last year when they won the league, they were trailing Liverpool by as many as 11 in February, and they have the depth and the talent and the, you know, wherewithal to be able to keep pushing forward and, you know, wait for somebody else to slip up because. I think City's best friend during this entire pep run has been their consistency on the pitch. You know, sometimes it's like this United game where you don't create those final third opportunities, but you're still dominant in possession. You're still getting the, you know, moving the ball that you the way you want it. And, you know, Casemiro makes an incredible challenge on Holland in the box to, you know, poke it off his foot before he has a shot from the penalty spot, presumably a goal. But, you know, there's still those games where City, even dominating possession, can't find that final gear, but they have the benefit of, you know, that's the style of soccer we're going to play and the goals will come when they come and we're not going to wig out and we'll let somebody else in front of us miss, make a mistake and then we'll catch up to them. But I think the question, you know, as Arsenal, and we'll get to them in a second, sorry to keep teasing the North London Derby, I guess we maybe should have started with it, but 
the way Arsenal's playing right now, and you know, United's playing super in- inspired. Newcastle, you know, concedes the least amount of goals in the Premier League. They're super young, you know, they're the new dog in this fight. Um, you have to go back to Shearer to the days they were relevant in the top four. How much should we be banking on? Say we're placing a future right now. Should we be banking on City to crawl their way back into the title race? Because right now, the gap, depending on the result at Spurs, can stay at five with a game in hand for Arsenal against United this weekend. You know, City's still on the cusp of chasing this, but if we're betting money, hypothetically, because we can't endorse that on WFUV Airways, should we be banking on the fact that City's been here before, has a system to chase it down. Holland's been kind of sluggish, but you know he'll turn it around eventually. Should we be banking on the fact that City's going to win the league just because of how many times they've been here before? Or if we're, you know, hypothetically we're to be a City fan, is there anything from this side that you can look at post-World Cup and say they're playing uninspired? You know, a, a draw to Everton, a 2-1 defeat before the World Cup to Brentford, you know, dropping points in uncharacteristic performances to really lesser opponents and then, you know, a game at Old Trafford that you should have won, but the end product wasn't there. Should City fans be concerned, or is it enough to say we've been here before, we know that come March into April, we're going to be in the spot that we want to just because that's what this club is? Well, I think that after today, they're going to get a much better idea of where they stand because Tottenham away is a good test. It's not it's not the best of the best necessarily, but it's a tough road place and if at that brand new stadium they're going to they make a difficult atmosphere but that's beyond besides the point because you're playing a top 6 team away at the midpoint of the season and your test is can we make uh can we cover 8 points ground on the on the leaders of the league and you think about that that's two wins and two draws that you have to cover up um just just to tie them on points so you're three wins back from from taking first place if you want to think about this like baseball fans and the reason I, I put it in those terms is because you have 19 matches left in the league now to get three wins where Arsenal don't, and that is going to be a very difficult thing if you've seen how Arsenal have been playing this year. Um, they've not only deservedly been the best team in the league, but they've been far and away the most consistent team in the league, especially among the best teams with their 15 wins and one loss. They have, I don't want to say that they've resembled the Invincibles uh, of the early 2000s, but they certainly have been the best Arsenal team in many, many years, and that will also play into their favor because they're playing for the rights to reestablish their club as a dominant figure in England, which it certainly hasn't been for a while. So uh, while I wouldn't say that City um, should write off their chances by any means because I think they have the most talented group of players uh, in the world, except for maybe Paris Saint-Germain, um, with that said, Arsenal are very far uh, away running away with now I wouldn't say running away with the league just yet but they're on the cusp of running away with it so City would have to have a statement win against a team like Tottenham in order for me to suggest that everything's okay and they're still going to win the league again because right now they have some ground to cover but they should still be confident in their ability a couple more slip-ups from City and we might be at the point where we're saying it's we're past the point of no return for City but you can never count them out just based on you know, the last couple of years you think back to, to the leagues and they've been down trailing Liverpool and it's just they just keep racking up win after win after win after win. The problem is at this point, Arsenal seem like the best team in the league and they've performed like that. And the games that you think would be a typical Arsenal trap game in previous years, you know, away a mid table team, 
they're winning those games too. And for City, you get two. You get the good news for City is they haven't played Arsenal yet. So you've got Arsenal February fifteenth um, at the Emirates, and then late in the season, uh, April twenty sixth um, at the Etihad. So City've got two games against Arsenal to to make up some of that ground. But you just think, you know, they've dug themselves into a point now where you can't be dropping can't be dropping points against teams you shouldn't be dropping points against. Um, Arsenal have built themselves. Uh, a nice cushion, but you know that, that that's a team, that's a side, that's a manager who have never really been at this place before. They've never been in first place, looking back at everybody, trying to you know keep setting the pace in the Premier League. That's something that you know Pep Guardiola and company are used to. But I think City have so much experience on this chase and knowing that when they can't drop points, they can't drop points. You know, it'll, it's going to be really interesting to see how Arsenal react to. This is their first title race in a long, long time, probably since 2015-16 when they finished second. And even then, they weren't really, towards the end, Leicester was running away with that. And it was really Leicester-Tottenham was what people thought was going to be the, the, the two-horse race towards the end of the season. But Tottenham fell off, and Arsenal ended up finishing second. So if you call that a title race, it's technically a title race. But it's been a while. It's been a while for Arsenal. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this... Mikel Arteta's squad of players handle the pressure because City are not going to stop. They're going to keep breathing down your neck the whole time. It looks like it might look like on the table you have some distance. You know, right now it's eight points, but blink and that'll be three points. And then it's anybody's. So I think for Arsenal, you just got to keep taking it, you know, truly one game at a time. And those two head to head games are going to be so key in deciding this title. And that brings us to Arsenal, who I think. Everyone felt they were on the cusp of something special when that was going to arrive. Me personally, I thought this was a year they'd finish top four easily. You know, they're playing in the Europa League this year. I thought maybe this is a year they finish top four, win the Europa League, something to that effect, or go far in the Europa League and secure Champions League through through the league because I think at the start of the year, everyone thought City would be up there. Liverpool and Chelsea would be significantly better than they were, than they are right now. Spurs would be up there. United would kind of still be in this, you know, limbo of are they good or are they not. And the way it's shaken out this year, you know, Arsenal, as you guys have said, has an eight-point advantage. Um, And, you know, I think that win against Spurs at home, 2-0 in the North London Derby, a game in which Spurs looked shambolic, Arsenal looked plenty comfortable. Not an Arsenal fan, I don't know. I know we aren't in this room, but... I think that was the first time, if you're an Arsenal fan, you think, we can win the league. Because that's a matchup that has a ton of bad blood in it. A Tottenham side led by, you know, Conte, who's pretty much at the end of his rope. So that would be, you know, a savior job kind of game. He's got a game against City today, and we'll touch on Tottenham after we get through Arsenal. But that's a game, another game where he he's at the end of his rope. He needs to win, essentially, to hope to still have a job. And with all that pressure going into Tottenham Hotspur Stadium to score two goals, you know, the first goal, Lloris needs to do better. I think that goes without being said. But that Odegaard goal, I think, has shown me what this team is really about. Because we know that, you know, Saka was going to be a threat. He's still maturing as a player and getting better as the years go on. In Ketty up front, and Martinelli, you know, alongside of him. Those are guys that can go get goals, 
But the secondary scoring, if we were to think about this like NBA, you know, say those front three are the primary scores. Xhaka's ability, Thomas Partey's ability, by the way, that volley, had that gone in, that probably been the best goal I'd ever seen in my life. Um, and Odegaard, coming out of the midfield, those three really give not only the defensive depth they need, the creativity they need going forward, but also an ability to score that I feel like, you know, when you look at teams like Liverpool or teams like Spurs or teams like Chelsea, their midfield is not involved in the attack in the way that Arsenal's is, in the way that City's is, in the way that maybe United's is becoming. And I think that's helped them so much, you know, build this gap. But also in that match against Spurs, that game was won and lost respectfully for each team in the midfield. And it was another masterclass by Arteta. You know, it seemed like when he was hired, there were still those questions of, is he the right fit? He's grown this culture over time. Everyone seems to be bought in. The leadership on the field, the togetherness, you know, all the antics that happened after the match concluded at a Hotspur Stadium, you know, very much a band of brothers on the pitch with Arteta, you know, only being, what, probably 10, 15 years older than most of those guys. You know, he's looked at with respect, but he understands what it takes to win the league and what it takes to be a you know, a member of Arsenal Football Club. So I think for me, after that Spurs game, the product on the field continues to grow and be consistent with Arsenal, but I think there's now that mentality within them. Maybe it was before the Spurs game, but it came into that Spurs game of we are the best team in the league and we are going to make sure that we let everyone know that's who we are. And to to look at where where they're coming from too, it's remarkable achievement and growth for for the club and also for just the players that they have to have, you know, reached this stage where Arsenal is looking back on everyone else chasing them in the league, and that and that hasn't been a reality in a very long time. I want to give credit to the board of the club as well for investing in Arteta for so long, because how rare is that? I mean, Tomas Tuchel was brought in mid-season at Chelsea, won the Champions League, and didn't survive for another year after that. So what does it say about Arsenal's vision looking forward that they were willing to hire Arteta in 2019 only for it to bring them uh, to the top of the league in 2022-23, whereas clubs like Chelsea, albeit we're going through perhaps a little more turmoil than most with the ownership and all that, um, but the point remains the same. Um, Outside of Klopp and Pep and now Arteta, at the top end of the Premier League, there really hasn't been much investment in long-term coaches, and you know Klopp and Pep are in their own category in that. So for Arteta to have now um, worked his way into that top three of coaches has been really, really impressive. And I think Ten Hag came in to being the United coach with already a, you know a pretty attractive profile with his work in Am- in Amsterdam. But now you have to give Arteta a lot of credit for what he's been able to do with his group of players, especially since. Uh, this is not; these aren't proven players uh, by any means. He's taken in a lot of guys that, um, in many ways, were either you know rejected by other clubs or brought in through Arsenal's youth system. A, a guy like Gabriel Jesus, I mean, everybody knew he had quality, but he couldn't hack it at Manchester City with the demand that they were having for their striker, and he walks into Arsenal and is a revelation. Guys like Saka and Smith Rowe have, have, are reaching their. F- the heights of new potential that we're not seeing with English players at many other clubs in the Prem right now. They're 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 doing so many so many good things with young players as well, which is why this team has been 
um, so consistent as well as so inspiring. And I think that now they have a really good, solid foundation to build off, not just for the rest of the season with that eight-point lead, but for many years down the line. And I think this is going to be um, perhaps one of the new uh, – I know it's hard to say Arsenal are a new heavyweight in the Premier League, but they are going to now establish themselves as one of the top two, three teams every year moving forward. When you're a super young team, you know, thinking about Arsenal at the end of last season, they just barely missed the Champions League. That's disappointing. That stings. But when you're such a young group of players, it's very easy from the outside to just assume that the young players are going to take the appropriate steps in terms of development and fulfill their potential. Because so often you see young players who are hyped up and they ball out for a couple of years, and then they fall off the face of the earth. And this, every club has these kinds of players. And for Arsenal, for each one of them to collectively grow together and take a step up is remarkable they've been able to do that. Whether it's you know someone like Odegaard, who they bring in, who was supposed to be a world-class player at Real Madrid. He was dubbed that when he first moved there when he was like 16, doesn't really get that many chances with the Real Madrid first team. Goes on load to Real Sociedad. Seems like he could be a quality player. Then he moves to Arsenal and he's reached new heights. Guys from the academy, Bukayo Saka, every single year has gotten better. Martinelli's improved immensely. Even people that they've sent on loan, like Saliba, have come back and cemented themselves as starting players and contributors to a team that's trying to win a title. So I think it says a lot about Mikel Arteta and the culture that he's built that... You can have so many young players who have so much potential, but then to actually reach and fulfill that potential is a whole nother thing. And it's something that a lot of times I think fans, when they're trying to, when their club's in a bad spot and they're looking towards the future, they take it for granted that, you know, these guys are going to do this and everybody's going to move on up and everything's going to be fine and dandy. But for Arsenal, these players have actually grown as a unit, which is remarkable to see in front of our eyes. And then they've supplemented it with, you know, excellent transfers. You know, bringing in Jesus, bringing on Thomas Partey in the middle. And it just looks like a, a side that even if, say, they don't get it done this year and say Man City, they don't have quite what it takes down the stretch. You know, they've shown so much this year already that this is going to be a team that competes in the Premier League for years to come. It's not going to be a team that's finishing 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th like they were in the middle of the 2010s and towards the end. That this is a new arsenal. It's sort of the time of, of a new era. And this core is young. If they can keep them together, even if they don't get it done this year, it, the future and what and what Mikel Arteta has built, they've invested in him. They've let him invest in the squad, and it's paid so much dividends. That leaves us with Tottenham to end up this fun weekend of Derby football. 2-0 loss at home. Antonio Conte is on the proverbial hot seat. I would say probably hotter than it's ever been. If you see what's coming up, they've got a match today against second-ranked City, who needs to put their foot on the gas, you know, to keep chasing Arsenal. And then on Monday they play Fulham, who currently sits at sixth. You know, the highest Fulham has ever finished, I think, was fourth, and it looks like that's a sneaky dark horse to maybe spice things up in a top-four conversation. So Antonio Conte's coaching for his job. I think that's known by everyone. You know, I wouldn't. I don't think it'd be so far off to say that if he fails to get a result against City and then on f- against Fulham, if they go 0 for 3 in the matches against top six opponents, um, I think Conte could be out. There's rumors that Tuchel's interested in his job. I don't know how what to weigh those with, but for Tottenham, it just seemingly 
I don't want to say frustration, but for me, watching it from a neutral perspective, it just seems like the same product year after year after year where it's Harry Kane can catapult us to winning, and if he doesn't do it, Lord help us. You know, Human Songs had a pretty off year. Defending, they're still going with, you know, Eric Dyer. Sessegnon has stepped up, but still that midfield, Hoiberg falling off, whoever else makes up that w- w- midfield when Perisic slides in. I don't want to say it's not become a destination place, but if you looked on paper just at no names at that midfield three or four or five, depending on how Conte sets them up, you could say that's a Crystal Palace side or a Wolves side. You know, their midfield, as we saw against Arsenal, was pretty shambolic. In the attacking third, Ramsdale played very well for Arsenal. Let's not take anything away from him. But it's still the, we need Kerry Hain to, Kerry Hain, <laughs> Harry Kane to win us a game because he is, I don't want to say the only attacking threat that they have, but he's the only consistent attacking threat that they have. And, you know, knowing that and how good he's been for that club for ages, they don't give him enough, I don't think, in terms of, you know, chance creation. A lot of it is have to be him, like, take a touch out from his feet and hit it or try and poach off a pretty lackluster cross. So I think for Tottenham, I wish there was more to dive into, but I, and if you guys feel like there is, by all means. But for me, it's the same uninspired soccer that we saw them get by with a lot of years because they're taught two of their strike partnership and Son and Kane were just in ridiculous form. But since Son has fallen off and, you know, defenders kind of give priority to Kane, it's still the same uninspired football just without the, you know, goals that get them back into matches. So I think Tottenham fooled a lot of people when they beat the, you know, crap out of Crystal Palace after the World Cup break. Now reality is set in and Antonio Conte's on the hot seat. And I, you know, people are saying Tuchel's linked to this, but if I'm Tuchel, I don't know how much I want to be there because it doesn't seem like a club with direction, and there's not been a standout Spurs player, not named Harry Kane, for the past five years in the Premier League. I'm, and I mean, you've had Heung-Min Son, who who has been there and has been, you know. The the Pippin to Kane's Jordan, if you will, in, in many ways, but as and and sometimes even outshined uh, Harry Kane. But that is not the case this year. I mean, Harry Kane's 15 goals in the league is remarkable uh, at the pace of play that he's at. But you you have to remember that there's only four players on our on Tottenham, I think, who have had more than two goals this season. They just haven't been spreading the wealth enough throughout the pitch, and that. Has been a problem for for Tottenham. Um, I mean, they we, we everyone says their whole team is comprised of two players, and when you take away one of those players, they're going to be less effective, and that's why that they're, you know, on the outside looking in in the Premier League table right now. I mean, they're in fifth, but there's a big disconnect between Newcastle and Tottenham. I feel like in the table, uh, from there, there's a pretty massive jump uh, in quality and in consistency. I think. Newcastle has earned the right to call themselves a top four team and Tottenham uh, haven't done that. I mean, uh, they certainly have ways to grow. If if that means that uh, <laughs> that it's bringing in Tuchel, I don't know how, if we can read into that this early, but it's certainly possible. Um, at this juncture, though, I, I really just think it's if we're looking at where Tottenham's at right now, it really just seems like they're not 
ready to contest for Europe uh, outside of the Europa League. They don't have enough offensively to counteract Sun having a, a really off year. They just they, they, they don't there's not enough there from from that front. And then you think about somebody like Ben Tencor who hasn't played since the World Cup. He's been injured and they've been trying to sort of cycle in different people next to Hoybier, whether it's Skip or Sar got the start, I think, against against Arsenal next to Hoybier. None of it's really worked. Um you just see I think back to the, the, the three at the back system that, you know, Conte employed under Chelsea and how he got the best out of a player like Victor Moses, who became a world beater, you know, under Antonio Conte in his first years at Chelsea. In a new position. In too. a new position at, at wing back. And then I look at the way this Spurs team play and I see and I think about the other teams I've seen that Antonio Conte's coach, whether it's Italy or, or Inter Milan, and it just doesn't look the same. It looks uninspired, and I don't really know what they do about it because Antonio Conte, I think we'd all agree, is a world-class manager, but for whatever reason, the fit, it hasn't worked. The investment, the players they've they've bought haven't really contributed a ton. You know, Benton Core was good. Kulisevsky was good, you know, when he came in last season. But these aren't guys that are going to really take you to that next level. Um, and I think for, for Tottenham... Right now, you've got to be focused on just the, the the European places and solidifying that. You know, sitting in fifth right now. But like you said, James, you think about Newcastle in fourth and the narrative surrounding their season, and Tottenham in fifth and surrounding theirs. It's so so different. And for Spurs, it's just got to be top four. That's got to be the goal. And if Antonio Conte can sort of weather through this storm of tough fixtures, then he'll probably end up staying. And if not, you know, then the club will be in limbo again. I just don't think there's much to... I feel like we have this talk about Tottenham a lot. And and it's been a while since they've really been, you know, up there in conversation competing for the title, even though they never win it and they probably never will. It's just... <laughs> oof, we're just talking... It's just Tottenham's Tottenham's middling in, in fifth place. Well, boys, I want to keep things moving. Um... Worth mentioning, Liverpool and Chelsea are in tenth and ninth. Um, Oof! In the yeah. Premier League, uh, as Nick and I both cheer for those two clubs, I don't think it's worth spending time on. They both look terrible. Both we'll look. Talk terrible. about Liverpool if you want. No, it's okay. Okay, we can keep him. If Michael Hernandez was in the studio, he would tell mm. us that the sky isn't falling. But they should. If Liverpool just needs to focus on Europe, they look pretty lost. Switching things over, you know, last year when Xavi was announced that he was going to be taking over Barcelona, and even this year watching them get knocked out of play in the Champions League, I think a lot of people were quick to rush, and I think there's still even a question now of, is Xavi the manager for Barcelona moving forward? They get it done in the Super Cup, though, playing against Real Madrid. Effectively a 3 nothing scoreline, Benzema scores, and the stoppage time to conclude that match, but there's been so much buildup about what this Barcelona team could be, and I think a lot of it is contingent on that midfield duo between Gavi and Pedri. Both of them score a goal. Gavi had a goal and then two assists. I think that midfield tandem is starting to turn things around in the way that Barcelona not only views itself, but how people view Barcelona. You know, the past year and a half, two years since losing Messi have been 
I guess it'd be three years now since they lost Messi. Wow. But, you know, since Lionel Messi left and the financial struggles that the club has had, there's a lot of people saying, will this team ever turn, you know, things around? And I think we can say now that it's starting to turn over. They sit atop the La Liga table, three points clear of Real Madrid. So I think that's going to be something fun for us, you know, listeners that aren't so Premier League focused as a lot of American fans are. If you're even out there, so what up? But that's a definitely, you know, a matchup we need to look at, I think, from a world soccer perspective because Real Madrid winning the Champions League last year kind of in the same way that Barcelona, when they lost Messi, it was a question mark. In the years post-Ronaldo, there's been a question mark in terms of what is the character of this Real Madrid side, and they found it, and last year was on full display. This year, I think we're starting to see that with Barcelona. Obviously, they can't win the Champions League because they're knocked out, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see Barcelona you know, win La Liga, and then next year, I won't be here, but you guys having a conversation at this time next year saying, "Will Bar- could Barcelona win a treble? Or something to that effect, because the way things are shaking out for them now at the top of you know, La Liga winning the Supercope, Supercopa, you know, that obviously has some financial incentives to it as well. So I think Barcelona, after a long while of turmoil and wondering what they're going to look like in 2022, 23, and beyond, I think we have an idea in kind of the same way that we saw it with Arteta at Arsenal, you know, a former player going back to a side which he loves. Xavi is Mr. Barcelona. And, you know, him being able to instill a midfield that plays tactically the way he wants to play, and it seems like the board is fully backing him and it's his club to manage. I think Barcelona's on the up and up, and you know when we talked about them going down and you know struggling, now we see that resolved where you know for world soccer to be good, Barcelona needs to be a name. And hopefully, you know, within the next couple months we see that because not only the Supercopa but also the, their performances in La Liga. It's not just, you know, getting goals from Lewandowski or, you know, Dembele. It's very fundamentally sound, and it reminds me of the Xavi and Iniesta and Busquets and Suarez and Neymar and Messi teams that we grew up watching, or Eto, if we even want to go back further, that every match day they play with an identity and they play like they can create and win games. I I want to highlight one thing about Barca that I feel like goes under the radar. Yes, we all know that they're... You know, on their way back to being on the up, yeah, they're at the top of La Liga. Admittedly, it's earlier in the La Liga season than it is in the Prem. I think they're three weeks behind or something. But Barcelona haven't just been the team that we remember them to be. They've actually improved in the sense that they've only conceded six goals on the year. I mean, one of the crowning achievements of playing tiki-taka style was, in fact, controlling the ball so much that the team, the other team doesn't have an doesn't even have a chance to score. Now, that was probably something that wasn't even always true. They would be vulnerable at times to conceding goals. But this back line of Kunde, Araujo, Jordi Alba, Araujo is being like the Swiss Army knife who can play as a fullback and a center back, has been a revelation for this team. I mean, Keenan, I think you said it all in terms of the culture of the club, what Chavi brings as the manager and what, you know, sticking with a manager who knows and is so deeply ingrained into the club's culture, the, what the value that that can have. But I think ta- tactically and technically, this Barcelona team, um, even defensively, has looked uh, phenomenal. And I think that is obviously when you're conceding uh, only six goals through 16 games, you're going to 
end up winning a lot. But I think it's just been a recipe for success that, uh, again, similar to how Arsenal, it doesn't seem like they're going to slow down. That's what's so promising about this Barca team is that it's been consistent and seems like it has a future as well. It's been really impressive, and it, it feels normal again that Barca are back on top of being, you know, and I haven't reached the status yet because it's going to be measured by success at the end of the season with silverware, but they have, uh, they have, you know, worked their way back into the conversation of being, uh, you know, the mecca of world football again. I, I don't think they have done that yet, but it's a conversation we're going to start having again soon. It's just fun watching Barcelona again, which I think most soccer fans who maybe aren't Real Madrid fans will agree that, you know, that team in, in its prime, you know, under Pep, Pep Guardiola and what they did later, was just a fun team to watch. And watching Pedri and Gavi move that ball against Real Madrid and how well they played, it was a little bit shades of Xavi and Iniesta on the field maybe 10 years earlier. And I think... Yes, Barcelona crashed out of Europe quite spectacularly and or crashed out of the Champions League. And that sort of seemed like a low point. People were talking about is Javi cut out for this. I think he definitely is. And I think what he's built at Barcelona, you know, to at least compete in the league and be ahead of a Real Madrid team that was so good last year. And, you know, they lose Casemiro, but they bring in, you know, Rudiger and they, and they, they have these pieces, and they have so many young players that are gonna that that are that are blossoming even more. Whether it's Vinicius or Rodrigo, Chuamani, Camavinga, and for Barcelona to get back to their style of football and put on that performance they did on Sunday to win the Super Cup, it you know sure it's the Super Cup, not the biggest trophy in the whole world, probably one of the smaller ones, um, but beating your arch rival. Winning El Clasico, it's it sends a statement that this is Barcelona team is is back, and that you know they're they're you know I don't always pay attention to La Liga, but then you check and Barcelona are are top of the table and back to playing the style of soccer that that made their club such a force you know ten years ago, fifteen years ago, and. To just get to back to that point is impressive that Javi's been able to do that because you know Messi left and all the managers they cycled through things were in disarray and to get just things back in line is is impressive. I, I think what the turning point really was was that trip to Harrison, New Jersey last summer. I think so too. I think when they stepped on the pitch against Dylan Nealis, they realized this is the direction we need to take the club in, and I mean it's it's paid dividends. Well, so. they say Araujo learned how to play right back. From watching Dylan Nealis. It's not even that. They were Chavi, I heard that they wanted to sign yeah. Dylan Nealis yeah. to to replace Sergio Dest, and it fell through as, it, as a lot of those they, things. They also need a, a John Tolkien type on the left yes. side. Yeah, that's and, what th- this is these are all things that were said to us. We're not making these up. And you know, check out this transition. Chavi wasn't the only one paying attention to John Tolkien as he earned his first Whoa. Oh <laughs> US men's national team call up. Oh yeah. For the January camp. That is probably one of the cleaner transitions we've had on this show. It always helps when you call it out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> get everybody transition. Get yeah. everybody's beak wet. Um, January camp that there's no Greg Burhalter. James, when we talked about the Real Housewives stuff, the soap opera stuff, we said it'll be interesting to see what this January camp looks like. Um, admittedly, none of the guys from the World Cup, with the exception of Johnson, Long, and Walker Zimmerman, the inevitables, as we call them. Yeah, okay. 
um, <laughs> the guys that don't play in Europe. Yes, who are on that World Cup side and Acosta too. I don't know if it, Ferreira, I, Ferreira, oh. yes. <coughs> Cheetah, and Paul Ariola. Yeah, that's one. That's one name I wanted to touch on actually. Mm. So we got the list of the names going into this camp twenty four. Um, I'm not going to run through them name by name just because that's too much, but a lot of guys getting their first cap with the United, Na- uh, United States um, national team. They were going to be playing Colombia, and James, help me out. Who else are they playing? Serbia. Serbia. Thank you. Two good actual sides. You know, Colombia not making the World Cup. Serbia we liked at the World Cup. We thought they would get out of their group, and they disappointed us. But two footballing nations that, you know, seemingly – are on the up and up and also have the ability to hang with the best of them. So I'm looking at this January camp and it's a lot of guys who haven't made an appearance for the national team. The ones that, you know, actually have, we can say actually would be Johnson, Zimmerman, Long, Acosta, Areola, even though I don't know if he really wants to say that after the World Cup. And then uh, Jesus Ferreira and maybe Matthew Hoppy, even though he's only appeared in six. Um, initial reactions, boys. I think that after the World Cup and, you know, leagues in Europe picking up, I think that this is a smart move. I think this is, you know, you just pick 26 guys to go play in the World Cup on the biggest stage. Why not see what else is out there? I think one name I have highlighted, and maybe it's because, you know, I grew up watching him train and trained with him a couple of times is Gabriel Slovenia, the sh- former Chicago Fire goalkeeper who's still under 20, plays for the U.S. under 20 side, now is at Chelsea. I think he is the goalie for my money that will start in the U.S. hosted World Cup in 2026, so it'll be interesting to see if he plays. But I'm really curious to see, you know, what shakes out of the forwards going, you know, moving forward. You know, you got Ariola and Ferreira. We kind of know what we can expect for them. Cade Cowell making his, hopefully, first meaningful start. Hoppy, Sabi from Odense, and then uh, Alejandro Zendejas, I think that's how I pronounce it, um, from Club America and Liga MX. So, you know, a lot of young talent brought in, I think – it's going to be impossible for U.S. men's national team Twitter to and Reddit to act rationally to this, not even this selection, but you know these matches against Colombia and Serbia just because if they win, it's going to be these are the guys, you know, whoever scores, it should have been the number nine in Qatar. And if they lose, it's what are we doing? Are we trying to like remove ourselves from relevancy for world soccer? So I think there needs to be a level-headed approach going into these upcoming friendlies, but I like to see the new faces, and, you know, Long and Zimmerman and Acosta, you know, maybe they're not going to be there in 2026. We don't know how 2026 is going to look. All we know about what looks right now, and I think those guys provide invaluable experience, you know, for how heavily capped they are, saying, okay, this is the culture of United States men's national team soccer, and especially, you know, what's happened over the past two months to, you know, be those, you know, rock-solid figures in the locker room and, you know, help take guys under their wings who haven't never played on the international level and say, okay, this is, you know, how we travel as a team, this is how we train as a team, et cetera. So I think it'll be telling. I'm not sure how much we can take away. Maybe, you know, somebody looks like an absolute world beater and that can get us excited. 
because it seems like after every international break, there's somebody new that we want to talk about, whether it be for better or for worse. Hopefully Aaron Long stays out of that discussion for the sake of you, James, even though he did move to LAFC. Heartbroken. I mean, we we saw it coming. Yeah, we knew right. it was coming. We knew yeah. it was. <laughs> so, that had been decided long ago. So I think, you know, these matches against Serbia and Colombia, I don't know what the, we expect to take away from them. Besides, there could be a couple of diamonds in the rough here in terms of young guys who, depending on how the national team shakes out with, you know, manager selection and whatever, I think the one thing the United States lacked at Qatar was depth. I think everyone agreed on that. You know, probably 15 through 26 it was a dramatic drop-off. And this gives good experience to younger players to, you know, not only show what they can do on the field, but give management and the U.S. Soccer Federation a chance to say, okay, here's where, you know, maybe we have some depth potentially stacking up, and then here's where it's still a gray area that we need to continue our search. And I think the the best way to to take anything away from this is to acknowledge first and foremost that January camp, in this regard, it's not incredibly serious. It's not meant to be. Um, it's a way to get. You know, young players, most of which domestic, um, a chance to just get reps with the national team, get involved. Um, and yeah, the, you could find a few diamonds in the rough. And I think um, I'm glad the opponents are, you know, Serbia and Colombia. Although if you look at the teams that they brought, most are either domestic or include actually both have MLS players on both of their squads. So n- neither game is going to be incredibly challenging. But, you know, with this group of players, we don't know what to expect. So that's that's why they do these camps, and that's what I'll be looking forward to see who uh, is impressive, who stands out, because if a player is not a standout in these types of games, then they probably don't have much of a future with the national team to begin with. And I know that might be harsh talking about so many young players, but, I mean, that's the reality of the January camp. If you're going to place future national team implications on it, you have to uh, expect to be asked to stand out. And um, I, while at the end of the day, the January camp, isn't going to be the end-all, be-all for any of these players' national team's futures. Um, it's still going to matter, which is why I think guys like Sean Johnson, Zimmerman, Long, um, Acosta, Ferreira, and Ariola probably all, maybe with the exception of Ferreira, they probably shouldn't play just because why would they need to play? For them, it would, this would just be a tune-up for the MLS season, which they could just be doing with their clubs. I mean, it's good to have them there for their experience and what they can teach, and if and if they need to be on the field to teach those moments, and so be. But really the point is for guys like Dewan Jones, who has been a standout uh, f- fullback in MLS at the age of 25 now for a couple seasons, it's a chance for him to get involved with the national team, and he deserves that. So, I mean, we'll see where what this team looks like going forward. I think the biggest... Uh, takeaway in terms from the politi- political side of these things is um, that Bearhalter still not being there raises questions about you know the future of his position. Anthony Hudson, a lot of people were clowning on his decision to on the decision to make him the interim head coach um, because of his poor track record with the Colorado Rapids and MLS. But he had very very strong uh, record with New Zealand when he was a national team coach. So I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and. Uh, as for some of the names you mentioned, Alejandro Zendejas, Brendan Vasquez, Cade Cowell, um, who else is there? Uh, Jonathan Gomez and Gaga Slonina. Um, a lot of all these guys are dual nationals, so to have them in is important. Uh, Slonina, you mentioned, should be the keeper. Should get the bulk of the of the minutes here. I I like Roman Celentano. I thought he was underrated for Cincinnati last year, but this is Slonina's position for the future. I think a lot of pressure is being put on him, but. Let's see how he does against Colombia and Serbia's C teams. So, I mean, 
It's, it's low risk, low reward at the January camp. I think uh, I'm excited to see a lot of these guys. Julian Gressel is another one. Just got his U.S. visa and is playing the Providence College first overall pick. So, I mean, there, there's some exciting storylines here, but at the end of the day, it's still just January camp. Yeah, it's hard to always take stock in January camp. I just feel like when I look at this roster now, I'm more excited than maybe I would be for January camp six, seven years ago when who's a, Chris Pontius would get a look in January Kenny, camp. Kenny Seth. The, the, Kenny Seth. I'd say the Chris Ju- Pontiuses of the world. Justin Morrow. Yeah, just, that's a good one. Yeah. Daniel Lovitz. Kellen Rowe. Kellen Rowe. Were these we guys? Could, we could go for. I could name so many average, <laughs> mediocre MLS players who've gotten caps, but I feel like Dax McCarty sticks out. In oh my! You did not just say yeah, that. Dax McCarty was terrible. That da- you know you didn't for the New York Red Bulls. Dax McCarty was a, was a as a national team player. Dax, player. Dax McCarty would go into January camp and wear the captain's band, and then when Michael Bradley decided he wanted to play, it'd be like, "All right, Dax, back to the training ground," and he'd take his ball and go home. I know you, you love him for being the Red Bulls captain. I, I, I just disagree that he was bad, too. Sasha I question, mean, like, too. Sasha, Sasha, Sasha I will accept because there were times where I he I thought he was given the short end of the stick going into 2010. That's, yeah. that's when he was in Europe. And then 20, 2014, 2018, when he was like coming back to MLS, wasn't a huge part of the team. That's, that's when he was bad. But the Dax shout is just so criminal, Bro, man. I watched him play two seasons with the Chicago Fire. You cannot convince me he had any talent. What do you mean he didn't have any talent? He, he he was the captain of the fire. That means when nothing. Schweinsteiger was there and Nico Gaetan. He's that a lead. Was, he's a leader of men. He's a leader. I I do not understand the Dax McCarty uh, slander. The it's point ridiculous. was that now I feel like there's more of these young guys who have potential compared to someone like Chris Pontius or even Dax McCarty. At age, what is Dax Party after the national team at age thirty-two or age thirty? Do you see, like, yeah, he didn't he belong didn't. being. He yeah, didn't, he didn't have to. No, be I think he was a very good MLS in twenty seventeen. Very good midfielder. So the so the bottom line is unforgivable. There are some exciting names to look out for. I'm so glad John Tolkien's finally getting a look. He's just I love John Tolkien so much. Some of these names, Emmanuel Sabi, I haven't heard that name in at least four years. He yeah. occupies the same smallest part of my brain as like Romain Gall. Jonathan Amon. Jonathan Amon. Those those three are in the same little pocket. Let's go. Up again. There. Let's keep going. Let's go again. Um, who else is there? <laughs> those are the only three like Nordic. I guess you could say they play in the uh, Nordic uh, leagues. Taylor Booth. Taylor Booth. Yeah. Well, he's good. He's good. He's good. Just when I saw Sabi's name, I was like, I was like, he's yeah. still kicking. I remember Emmanuel Sabi from my FIFA 17 like USA career modes that I was like, oh, this guy's going to be the next uh, Pulisic. And it's, it's another chance for someone like Matthew Hoppy, who I don't know what's happened with him at Middlesbrough this year. You know, he, he's been playing with the U23s I've seen. Has even struggled to get time there. He struggled to get time there. I loved him so much at the Gold Cup. Um, Played with fire that like we only yeah. see otherwise in like Geo Arena. Like he was really annoying, but like it's cool when he's on your team. Yes, exactly. All right, boys, I think that's going to do it. A lot of fun, I guess, the unexpected Dax McCarty feud, which we will somehow work into a lot more episodes. Cause it's that going to work into every episode. A lot I'm more never going to let you forget <laughs> you, that you said that. Gino Alva was our producer today. Big shout out to you, Gino. Good to be back in studio, boys. For those who actually listen to us, thanks for you know sticking out this full hour. <laughs> Nick Guzman on my left. My buddy James Burley on my right. I'm Keenan Troy. This has been FUVFC. Back in studio. Weekly episodes returning all throughout this spring. Take care.